Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, Patient Selection for Treatment with PARP Inhibitors in Ovarian Cancer. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. In this first podcast of our three-part series, Dr. Robert Coleman and Dr. Kathleen Moore discuss PARP inhibitors for the treatment of ovarian cancer. What is the history behind their development and the recent guideline changes regarding their use? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ovarian cancer one. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Coleman is the Chief Scientific Officer at U.S. Oncology Research at Texas Oncology, Shenandoah, Texas. Dr. Moore is the Associate Director of Clinical Research in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Coleman will begin our discussion. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is uh, Rob Coleman, uh, Dr. Rob Coleman, coming to you uh, on this wonderful podcast to talk about patient selection for the treatment of PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer. And I couldn't be more pleased to have uh, joining with us today Dr. Katie Moore, Kathleen Moore from, uh, from uh, Oklahoma University, uh, the Stevenson Cancer Center. And we'll be discussing a pretty fluid topic. Uh, this is PARP inhibitor use in ovarian cancer. Um, I think even while we've been talking about the putting this podcast together, so much has changed. So, uh, in fact, even this last week, some of the indications uh, have changed. And so, again, as I said, it's a very fluid topic. So we're really excited to talk about uh, in these uh, podcasts about the uh, role of PARP inhibitors, uh, how we got these drugs uh, into the clinic, how we're using them today, the toxicities, and then ultimately the future as uh, we look at where these drugs uh, can go. So first, let me introduce uh, Dr. Uh, Kathleen Moore. Katie, say hi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us today. So um, uh, for those of you joining the podcast, I should also know that Dr. Moore has uh, been uh, integral to the development of the ASCO guidelines, which will come up uh, along uh, this uh, discussion of Parkinson's and ovarian cancer. Um, and so it'd be interesting to also get her perspective on how these guidelines were put together and how they've been implemented. So we'll we'll get to that. So that's that's just a teaser of what's to come. So um, let me let me start out at the beginning though. Uh, you know, PARP inhibitors. Um, we've known about the role of PARP for uh, a long time. The efficacy or the impact of using a drug to inhibit PARP function really became kind of burst on the scene about 15, 16 years ago in 2005 with the uh, a description of in vitro work of cells that uh, were biallelic deficient in BRCA in those in those papers in BRCA2 uh, with the exposure to a PARP inhibitor. So Katie, um, tell us a little bit about you know what we saw in those preliminary studies and why we got so excited about this for uh, for you know what we use today as uh, as PARP inhibitors in the management of patients with, with ovarian cancer. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, you know, it's a it's been what seems like a long journey, but really in drug development, it is a relatively short journey from sort of preclinical to clinical actionability of a of a drug. 
But this really burst onto the scene, as you said, um, it was a little more than 15 years ago now, 2005, there were um, really three kind of fundamental, foundational preclinical papers uh, that were published uh, in um, Nature and Molecular Cell by really like leaders in our field, um, Drs. O'Connor and Farmer, et cetera. The one that you referenced really is the key one. We always show the figure on all of our our PowerPoint slides of the mm -hmm. efficacy, the, the the profound efficacy of monotherapy, PARP um, uh, inhibition on biallelic loss of um, BRCA2. That was the original model, was a BRCA2 mm -hmm. uh, model as compared to either wild, completely wild type or monolytic loss. Uh, and that was recapitulated in, in the other papers as well in different models, but very consistent findings. Uh, and so those were, and those were beautifully done models of all, you know, we always talk, you and I always talk about um, model questionability and, you know, kind of things that move into, into clinical trials based on kind of uh, fuzzy-ish models, not talking about the, the animal. But these were really well done. Like these were kind of pivotal preclinical work that launched um, PARP into the scene. And then you just saw the development, you know, this um, Olaparib or Limparza, uh, we'll call it Olaparib for this, just for... Um, Staying with generics, was actually originally developed by a company called Artios uh, and then licensed by AstraZeneca and took off the original phase one studies, uh, accrued very quickly, largely in um, breast cancer, but ovarian as well, fortunately, uh, because in, this is one of the rare situations where development in ovary really was kind of quickly the initial mm -hmm. development. Path, drive. Right? Driving, is, yeah, yeah. We, we really drove it. And, and that's unusual for us. You know, a lot of times we see things that work in breast cancer and then, they'll, oh, we'll try it in ovarian cancer. Um, but here we really drove uh, development with um, lots of participation on the phase one studies. And there's been quite a few manuscripts done over the years, kind of cumulative efficacy, predominantly in, uh, as always in phase one, relatively okay. heavily protruded tumors, but that were BRCA. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up uh, while, while we had an opportunity. You know, the so the because in in ovarian cancer we really don't have the luxury of a lot of predictive biomarkers and so um, this was as you mentioned in the preclinical work uh, we had biallelic loss of BRCA2 mutated uh, cells and um, we were able to show then that these were very sensitive and now uh, we have this ability to identify BRCA mutated ovarian tumors in patients. Uh, and and that allowed us to align that predictive biomarker uh, with uh, with the use of this drug, and so you know with that kind of demonstrating that those two kind of components, tell us a little bit about the clinical development of the you know we started as you mentioned with a lap rib, but obviously that that expanded to you know three other PARP inhibitors uh, that we'll talk about: norepirib, uh, rucaparib, and voliparib um, in ovarian cancer. Um, so, but what was the kind of the initial step? So we got this excitement, preclinical work, you know, we did a phase one publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009. And then what, then, then what, then what happened? Well, I think you, know, the, um, really drove the initial development and you talked about the, the, the pivotal paper in, in 2009. Uh, again, the, the work for the first time, really looking at this biomarker selected group of tumors, uh, initially BRCA, uh, giving us information also on its predictive capability, its predictive biomarker power just for chemo, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in particular, 
uh, when you talk about pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, you know, the response rates to that versus Olaparib were quite surprising, but it sort of showed, sort of teach, taught us that at least still platinum sensitive BRCA um, uh, positive PARP naive tumors respond well to a lot of things and you can't apply right. old benchmarks to them. And so we started learning uh, and the development of Olaparib took off. Uh, we saw the first accelerated approval in 2014 based on Bella Kaufman's excellent work that we call now study one. Uh, and we'll talk about this, I think a little bit more because that, that approval has now been retracted, but it was the first opportunity to launch PARP inhibitors um, into the community. So women who desperately mm -hmm. needed these medicines got them. Um, three or more lines of therapy, BRCA um, positive. At the same time, Rucaparib uh, was uh, developing uh, uh, their agent. That's a Clovis drug. And they were really looking at it both in BRCA, but also uh, with a biomarker, uh, which they term loss of heterozygosity, uh, to identify tumors beyond BRCA that would also harbor some sort of inherent vulnerability to how those how they fix their DNA and mm -hmm. also be susceptible to PARP inhibitors. And there's a lot of data about why that made sense. And so it was a very elegant series of studies that you were involved in, as was Dr. Liz Swisher and, and others, many luminaries mm -hmm. in our field, to really get at the science. Like it was a science-driven biomarker development plan with a lot of pivots to get the biomarker right. So that resulted in Arial 2 and the, the next approval is a monotherapy, which also has been retracted in two yeah. or more lines, um, but it include tumor BRCA in that first right. one. And those were not eligible initially for PARP. So those were very important studies and I'm sad about the retractions. I think we'll talk about them in this podcast, but those really got drugs to patients who desperately needed them. I couldn't agree more. Um, obviously, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot over the years, um, having been part of this story. You know, um, so one of the things I just want to maybe make sure our listeners understand is that this, uh, these approvals that came, these accelerated approvals for Olaparib, Rucaparib, and Niraparib, we haven't really gone into yet, but those approvals were based on what features? I mean, how did we, were these overall survival trials or what was no. the thing that, yeah, so these no. were what what did these do that we got caught our attention? These had very high response rates and not mm -hmm. just response. So response rate, just for those who may not be involved in clinical trials, response rate is a clinical trial term. And it basically means when we look at the tumors and we measure the tumors on the CT scan that we want to measure, we get to pick them. So it's totally subjective, but we pick a few, we measure them. And if they shrink by 30% or more, that's a response. Um, and so all the people that have 25% shrinkage are not counted in that. I always like to make that point to patients. It's not, it's not all about right. response rate by clinical trials is not necessarily like clinical benefit, but, but you have to have a metric. And so that's what we use, but it's not just response rate. Um, it's also dur the duration of response. Like how long do you hold that disease under control and what would be considered, um, the term we use is a high end met need clinical situation. Uh, and so that high unmet need clinical situation is changing. Um, and we may talk about that during this podcast, but at the time these two studies resulted were kind of patients who were um, platinum resistant to platinum and um, kind of outside the Aurelia label, which mm -hmm. means they had prior bevacizumab and that's been variably applied with these biomarker directed studies um, and where traditional medicines Mono, which is monotherapy chemo, have a very low expectation of response. And that 
And that expectation in general is felt to be about a 13% response rate with a poor durability. And mm -hmm. so if you beat that by two standard deviations, roughly, mm -hmm. a 30% range-ish, then mm -hmm. that's a medicine that should be made available to patients in what's called an accelerated approval pathway. So you can get the medicine to patients who need it while you're running what's called a confirmatory trial, which is a big randomized phase three. And as we all know, those take many, many years to run. But you want to make the drug available for those who wouldn't otherwise qualify for that study um, so they can have access to a life-changing drug quicker. Excellent. Uh, excellent summary. And I think just, you know, to kind of put this in perspective, you know, we were seeing response rates between 30 and 50 percent, depending on the trial, with duration of response that were lasting nine months in these pre-treated patients, but biomarker identified. And that was, I think, you know, caught our attention and was you know, really important because the next step in this process, as you mentioned, was to try to identify these uh, confirmatory trials. But, but, and we, and I think there's a little bit of a, you know, maybe just a little bit of a, a separation there in that what we considered confirmatory trials and what was the, kind of the next step, which was to the adoption of maintenance therapy in the platinum sensitive setting, uh, were two different sets of trials. And of course, we have many of you, many remember that NOVA uh, was the, it was the phase three trial, actually two trials that were looking at the role of niraparib in platinum-sensitive um, recurrent ovarian cancer patients who had responded to platinum. And then we use that as a maintenance therapy. And then we had Ariel 3. And of course, study 19, uh, which was the Laparib, um, was kind of a com combination of study 19 and SOLA 2 that were, again, assessing this role of maintenance therapy. But the confirmatory trials were a little different, right? We saw SOLO 3 was the mm -hmm. confirmatory trial for Laparib, Ariel 4, a confirmatory trial for Rucaparib. We didn't really have a confirmatory trial for, for, for niraparib, although um, it was kind of caught up in those retractions. And so I wanted to make sure that we separated these confirmatory trials versus these phase three trials that led to um, this enhancement of the indication. So maybe before we get to the retraction issue, why don't we talk a little bit about what, first of all, what is maintenance therapy in this setting? And, and just kind of briefly uh, go through the, the advances that we saw with with uh, uh, with those three drugs in their uh, in their maintenance of you know platinum sensitive maintenance indications, right? So we'll talk about the platinum sensitive maintenance first because I do think mm -hmm. the objectives are different mm -hmm. frontline versus platinum sensitive. So mm -hmm. the platinum sensitive maintenance story was an interesting one, and again, this is another story where we learned. I remember <laughs> watching Nova uh, Mansur Mirza, Dr. Mirza, mm -hmm. presenting Nova in Copenhagen mm -hmm. in 2016. And seeing him put that control arm up for the BRCA subset and not believing it was only 5.5 months. But it's true when you mm -hmm. do placebo, because we saw it in every other study, solo two yep. and aerial three. It's very consistent what happens right. when you um, take a patient who is in response to platinum in the recurrent setting and you stop. And I learned I, that was not <laughs> my bias at all. So that really was a big frame shift for me, in, in terms of thinking about the importance of maintenance and developing good maintenance agents for our patients. And I think a lot of us felt that way. And so you saw the, the, the tide turn uh, towards really accepting maintenance um, in this setting where, where we just have to be honest, you know, even if someone has had a great response to platinum-based therapy, which we hope for, there's still disease there. And if you stop, mm -hmm. it's going to come back. 
And then you're sort of in this hamster wheel of just constant cytotoxic chemotherapy for the remainder of that patient's life and maintenance therapy in BRCA and um, PARP naive tumors, irrespective of the biomarker, really did provide a very meaningful improvement in the progression-free survival that led to an all-comers indication for all three um, drugs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was that was phenomenal. So, um, and obviously, this maintenance um, use of of this therapy while patients had had responded to platinum was a big was a big change for us. You know, ultimately, our our the prize, as you well know, was to move this into the frontline setting. So, just to recap, we had preclinical data that was biomarker, you know, suggested. We approved it in patients by shrinking tumors with the same biomarker signature. We added it as maintenance therapy as a to patients that were demonstrating kind of a functional biomarker of sensitivity to platinum, but and and that that carried through on all of this diff, the three different cohorts of patients, BRCA mutated, HRD test positive, and the intent to treat population. And so the prize was to move it into the frontline setting because that was our greatest shot for cure, which I even hesitate to even say, but it's so exciting now. Probably that you led um, now is really reaping tremendous dividends. And so I thought maybe before we get um, to talk a little bit about the, some of the controversies, tell us what happened in the frontline setting and why are we so excited about this? Well, we took the successes of the platinum sensitive maintenance and we moved it to frontline because as you say, you know, anytime we move something to frontline, the magnitude of benefit tends to get better when it works anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we knew PARP inhibitors were working. Uh, and so having them uh, in a less exposed tumor may optimize them to work you know, even better. And so the first study to roll out was SOLO1, which I will remind the audience started accruing in 2013. It just took us forever to get to an end point, but it really was, you know, we'd probably designed it a little differently now, but it was the, the first study to run only in BRCA associated cancers. They were 99.9% .9 germline tumors. Um, and used uh, Olaparib for up to two years, um, toxicity progression or up to two years uh, as maintenance and then stopped. And this, and that's an important point to make because when we first designed the study, this study was designed actually interestingly as part of the, um, <laughs> it was discussed as, 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 as in the NCI, like by at NRG or legacy yeah. GOG group, there were a lot of experts at the table arguing about this. And the initial design was to treat forever because we felt these patients were so high risk and we we're going to just treat forever. And, and the FDA pushed back on us. And in this case, they were right. Um, uh, in my opinion, that mm -hmm. was a good call. Great. And so that study took until 2018 to read out um, PFS, but demonstrated a 70% reduction in the hazard of progression. Uh, we have not reached OS by the statistical analysis plan yet, but we're able to report uh, we used a little bit of alpha and looked at OS at seven years, and it's highly statistically significant. Well, let me just take that back. It's highly politically <laughs> significant, <laughs> yeah. but it, because we spent yeah. a little teeny, teeny bit of alpha in order to make it highly statistically significant, you know, it was an unreachable yeah. bar, but who cares? The curves are way apart. But even more importantly than OS, which is are you alive or not, which is important, very important. But more important now is who's alive and they never recurred exactly. versus who's alive on therapy. And so for those that were initially put on Olaparib, we have about 45% of our participants who are still alive without recurrence. So they have been off their assigned therapy for five years. 
Now in the placebo arm, it's 20%. So there's a group of people, we see that 20% in all of the subset analysis of BRCA for Paula and Prima. There's a group that does not need our PARP inhibitor. But Mm -hmm. if we can tell who they were reliably and just say, you are going to have a great life, go. That would be amazing. I'm a big fan of de-escalation, but I can't tell who they are yet. And so we're going to over-treat that 20%. We just have to acknowledge Mm -hmm. that up front. Um, to help the 45%. So, so we are finally talking about cure. Mm-hmm. So you talked about Solo One, and then you mentioned briefly about Prima and Palo One. How are those trials different? So those trials were kind of um, like difference between Solo Two and then Ariel Three and Novo. It was BRCA and then all comers. So Paula and Prima were all comers with appropriate stratifications. Paula, mm-hmm. the stratification was BRCA, um, and Prima. Um, you know, HRD inclusive of BRCA. So if you're HRD positive, that included the BRCA. And that had two primary endpoints, HRD positive inclusive of BRCA and then ITT, both of which were positive for Mm progression-free survival. Paula, ITT and the all-comers positive for progression-free survival and positive in this non-analytic subgroups for BRCA and HRD BRCA wild type, which is why we have the indication that we have mm-hmm. in Prima monotherapy neuraparib versus placebo was positive in the two pre-specified groups. That should have been enough, mm-hmm. but it was also positive in all three non-analytic subgroups, HRD test negative, HRD test positive, BRCA wild type, and BRCA. And that's mm-hmm. why it has an all-comers indication. Right. And so the uh, Prima trial and the SOLA-1 trial were maintenance trials versus placebo. Um, the PALA-1 trial was a little different, wasn't it? It had, uh, it had used patients who had been on Paclitaxel, carplatin and bevacizumab. And then at the point of completion of treatment without progression, they were randomized to Olapra versus placebo. So that trial is a little bit different. And uh, how, how do you incorporate that into um, you know, the use of uh, Olaparib, uh, in, in, you know, to in today's uh, care of patients? I think that's sort of the one of the unanswered questions. Now, there are studies ongoing. Um, there's three studies that are currently enrolling that are looking at a, a PARP inhibitor plus bevacizumab versus a monotherapy PARP inhibitor. Uh, and they're all enrolling in Europe, mainly in BRCA wild type. So those are going to be important studies because we're missing an arm in Paola, which is the monotherapy PARP. So you really don't know um, whether or not do you have to have the bevacizumab? People ask me, like in a BRCA population, do you have to? Does it make it work better? And I think at this point, we don't have information that it's synergistic in BRCA. We did what's called a propensity weighted analysis, where just to be super brief, we basically created the missing arm of Paula, the Olaparibolone arm, mm-hmm. out of Solo One. Like we picked Paula-like patients from Solo One and redid the progression-free survival curves. And the hazard ratio for olaparib-bev versus olaparib was 0.71, so additive, looked additive. additive. So yeah. if you're going to use bevacizumab, you've made that decision usually early on based mm-hmm. on your practice or the patient's ascites or stage or debulking status, You know, however you've made that decision. And then you find out that they have BRCA and you have or haven't started BEV, well, you either layer it on or you just go to monotherapy PARP. For BRCA wild type HRD, I think that's a harder decision because we just can't mm-hmm. even do any of those sort of mathematical analyses between Prima and Paula 
because the populations are so dissimilar, it would be nonsensical to do that. That's why those studies that are ongoing are really important. But for now, I would think about yeah. it in the same way. And we'll get to those studies in podcast three. So we're real excited to be able to talk about that. I, um, I'm just going to summarize briefly um, what we've talked about today. And, and I want to highlight the emphasis on the need to get uh, analytical information from the patient's tumor. So BRCA status, obviously critical. Because of the uh, HRD indication for PALA-1 with uh, Alaparib and Bevacizumab, HRD testing, critical for that understanding. And we'll, co we'll continue to try to sort out that uh, component. But I think because of the wave uh, of new therapies that are coming in ovarian cancer, our, our comprehensive evaluation of patients' tumors will be absolutely critical for their um, ultimate care, not only in the frontline setting, but subsequent lines to come. And uh, just, you know, we alluded to this a little bit um, uh, during the podcast before we close. I just wanted to highlight that we've seen some recent FDA action regarding the retraction of indications. We've mentioned this a couple of times. Katie, maybe just really briefly, could you just um, uh, maybe highlight, you know, the, the uh, retractions that have happened to date and maybe what's driving that uh, concern by the FDA? Sure. So the, the retractions, um, it's been a set of dominoes. So the retractions were first for the treatment indications. So this mm -hmm. is not maintenance. This is using PARP instead of chemotherapy in a recurrent setting, uh, either after three lines, BRCA positive for Olaparib, after two lines, BRCA positive, inclusive of tumor BRCA for Rucaparib, or HRD positive, inclusive of BRCA, four lines for niraparib. So those three indications went down because um, there was a request to look at overall survival from those analyses. Well, it wasn't those analyses. There was a request to look at overall survival from the confirmatory, confirmatory trials, trials. studies, which was Ariel 4 and SOLO 3. If you recall, mm -hmm. those were randomized phase 3 studies in the treatment setting of in BRCA tumors of CARP versus chemo. And all of them you know, showed a PFS advantage, but on OS, um, the curves flipped. And so the hazard ratios were greater than one, although the confidence intervals were all incredibly wide and crossed one, so not statistically significant. And many, I think we'll probably talk about this, I hope in a later podcast, there's many statistical concerns about the overinterpretation of this, but mm -hmm. the consistency of, the signal, however you and I can discuss we, why we think it's happening, mm -hmm. the consistency of the signal made the FDA, uh, well, I, the retractions were voluntary, so made the mm -hmm. companies respond to the FDA's concerns. concerns. Which, re That's right. Retracted yeah. those indications. And then, um, so, so those are gone. Now, the most recent one is the, um, surprisingly, is the HRD positive BRCA wild type maintenance indication from NOVA for the same reasons um, the OS data seems to imply a uh, detriment. And so that has now been removed in a dear doctor letter. So for Niraparib currently, you can only use it for BRCA associated um, cancers in response to their platinum. This does yeah. not affect frontline indications, which is where we should be using PARPs. Right. To even be even more specific, the the indicate the retraction from the FDA looks like it appears to apply to just in Nova, just the germline uh, or the non-germline uh, 
uh, BRCA tumor cohort, which includes SBRCA. And what's interesting is that we heard this week that for uh, Ariel 3, which had, a, again, another consistent message in an all-comer um, uh, population that there could be um, uh, survival detri detriment, as they used the term, uh, and there's been a request by the FDA uh, to Clovis to retract their their non-BRCA, T-BRCA, tumor BRCA. So interesting, on one side, if you have a tumor BRCA mutation, you can use Recaparib, but you can't use Niraparib, which makes no sense, but we'll get into that later. So <laughs> let me... <laughs> Let me uh, let me close this uh, let me close this wonderful discussion, Katie. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to speak with us today about uh, this wonderful history of a drug that has really uh, had a tremendous impact. The greatest impact of which is what you mentioned earlier that long cohort of patients with uh, tumors that are BRCA mutated and have not recurred after multiple years of observation. Uh, we're really hopeful that this will translate into true cure uh, for this disease. We have much more to talk about, and we'll do that in our subsequent podcast. We'll talk about toxicity and tolerance treatment, and then ultimately, we'll talk about where this field is moving forward. So once again, I want to thank you uh, for, uh, for your time, uh, Dr. Moore, and to the audience for listening in on this podcast on PARP inhibitors and ovarian cancer. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ovarian cancer one. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.